Good evening. Welcome to the final panel for Growth Week 2013. I think we discussed lots of interesting ideas for growth in the last three days, and we conclude with uh, perhaps the most interesting, but definitely the most challenging, which is how to create economic growth at the very bottom of the income distribution, the poorest people in the poorest countries. Uh, tonight we have uh, Abhijit Banerjee, who is a professor of economics at MIT, and Robin Burgess, professor of economics at LSE, who will discuss evidence on the Ultra Poor program, which is an innovative poverty reduction program created first by BRAC in Bangladesh. And we're very happy to have here Mushtaq Chowdhury, who's the vice chair of BRAC itself. And finally, Dean Carlin, who's a professor of economics at Yale, who will also discuss evidence from Ultra Poor programs in other countries. So welcome to the speakers, welcome everybody, and enjoy the session. Okay, uh, welcome everybody. So I'm going to start with a, uh, just a few slides hopefully on an evaluation which is done with this long list of people here including uh, Oriana but also two, two members of the research team at, uh, at BRAC. But I wanted to start by just um, saying a few words about how this project got started. So the project got started because uh, I knew Mushtaq Chowdhury who's here. Um, and that was because we ha I had a Thai student who was studying informal education in, in Bangladesh. So I went out there and they said, you should visit this program that we have in the northwest of the country. So I went up there. And from lists, and so the first observation was the BRAC offices were incredibly well organized. They had lists of everybody. So I selected a few people. And this is 2006. So the piloting, some of the women I visited were four years into the program and some were two years in. And one thing that was sort of striking about the, when I visited, and obviously it was done through a translator and everybody in the village showed up and, and took a look, was there was something that was strikingly different about the women in terms of not only the facts, the, the key question I kept asking was, have you done anything in areas outside the asset that was transferred to you? So in many of these villages, one key thing that people want is paddy land. So have you bought paddy land? Have you... And in a few cases, not in large amounts, they had already diversified into some other asset. This is particularly the ones after four years. So that made me think, well, A, they seem to have a very different attitude, you know, around the headman and so on. They seem to be much more confident. But it was clear that they were still operating the asset that had been transferred. And in some of the cases, they'd, you know, they'd moved into some other, uh, some other uh, asset. You know, for example, paddy land or buying a, a cycle rickshaw and renting it out. So that made me think, well, maybe there was something here that was different in terms of the impact that's having on these women, in particular that they were sort of changing the occupations that they were doing. Because primarily these women at the point that they receive uh, the program are agricultural laborers or domestic servants. So that was the first thing I want to say. The second thing was the reason that I, I was personally interested in this is that for a long time I'd been working uh, on, uh, on, on some work with Dave Donaldson at MIT on railroads and famines in, in India. And it was clear when you read all the reports, the famine commission reports and so forth, that many, many of the victims were landless laborers. So the sort of bottom tier 
society in India has always been landless laborers. And the reason is you know, fairly simple. They're uneducated, so they don't really have access to non-agricultural stuff. And then the type of employment they have is incredibly seasonal. Right? So their sort of main income is sort of the wage over the price. And if there's bad weather, such as the case famines, you know, the, the wage gets pressed down and the price gets pushed up. So you know, in, in that case. So I've been sort of interested in this group and whether they could ever be reached. And that sort of comes to the third point I want to make is this ultra-poor idea. So these, these people, as we see, are not you know, the poor. They're the, the ultra-poor. So they're basically defined in a variety, of, a variety of ways apart from very low incomes. You know, primarily things to do with assetlessness. You know, they just don't have any assets. They're uneducated. So they don't really have any opportunities except for this rather itinerant wage labor market. Okay, so they may, you know, they may operate some small amounts of poultry, uh, but they're really in a very tenuous position. And so later on I was doing some other work on, on weather in India, and again you saw this pattern where weather, even in the period after independence, seemed to be associated with higher mortality. And even though we couldn't break out who was dying, my, and this was only in rural areas, my suspicion was again that in India today and in Bangladesh and in many of the South Asian countries, you still have this very, very bottom tier of ultra-poor women. And those people will be defined differently, say, in Africa, but they'll have very similar characteristics, primarily that they lack capital and they lack skills. Right, so these are people who are short of both. And the, 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 the program that we're all going to be talking about today basically is innovative in the sense, in sort of three respects. The first is it's kind of like a big push program. So it actually gives large transfers. So in the, in the, in the program that uh, um, I'll be talking about, it's mainly, you know, they get a choice of what little business they want to run, and they mainly chose livestock, primarily cows. They may make, they may make different choices elsewhere. But a cow is worth a lot of money. So the transfer, just the livestock asset transfer is about $140 per annum. And then there's an additional about $140, $150, which is all the visits they receive from BRAC officers, the livestock training they receive in the classroom, the livestock, livestock specialists that come one to two months. So imagine these women you know, that I saw, the ones that hadn't received the program, who are living in sort of ramshackle uh, huts, children not in school, no assets, illiterate, suddenly they receive all this attention. They receive an asset, they receive the, uh, the necessary training to, to operate that asset. So the sort of first characteristic of the program, which I think is, 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 is different, if you want to put it that way, is it's big. It's, big. it's a big push to kind of give them a lot of capital and skills. The second aspect is it's given together. So you get the capital and the skills together. Now, we're, not, we're, we're looking at a combined, uh, these things come together, but you know, other, other programs are trying to separate those. And the third characteristic, which I think is, is incredibly important, is that they uh, receive this assistance for a while. So it's not like they get some classroom training and then people say, okay, see you later, and hope that they'll go on and take new occupations. They're visited weekly. They're, you know, their savings books are checked. There's a lot of attention placed upon them. And then after two years, they're sort of said, okay, that's, that's, that's your lot. And they're, they're encouraged to, enjoy, uh, to join microfinance groups. 
So when I, when I talk about difficult to reach, these are people who, even though microfinance is very well, you know, there's a lot of microfinance in, in, in Bangladesh, I think pretty much every village has some operator, they were not demanding any microfinance because they saw no use for capital because they were basically working in these wage labor markets, they were not investing, primarily that some of them were operating some livestock. So I think this intensity of treatment is incredibly important. It's very different, and it's, it's like you're receiving a lot of attention uh, uh, over a sustained period. And the question is, does that, and this is sort of, again, what I think is very different, does that actually allow you to sort of change occupation or at least move into some different uh, lines of business? And that, again, is very different from most of the kind of training or uh, finance capital interventions you see. So those are mainly just focused on people who are not, you know, they're not going to, uh, who are not going to shift uh, occupation. And if you, you know, if you think about the overall process of development of people shifting occupations, this is, this is something which is sort of like trying to, ch to take the people essentially at the bottom, very, very bottom part of the income distribution of the village and move them a little way up. And I'm going to come at the end to look at how far they've moved up relative to uh, uh, sort of the, the middle and top of the of the, of the uh, uh, income distribution of these villages. So primarily I think what is, what is interesting is, I mean this, this is you know, fairly, uh, fairly evident what the questions are, starting with low capital skills, we don't know that if you push on both those fronts uh, you're going to get uh, some effect on, on labour supply. And finally, we don't know whether, if even people do make an attempt to change occupation, that's going to put them on a different trajectory uh, than had they not received those capital and skills. So the way I see it is that, you know, we, we obviously, anybody who visits any, pretty much any, you know, community on earth, sees some correlation between uh, uh, capital and skills and things like income. But the problem is, it's not clear that the lack of capital skills are a cause of poverty, right? So what we're trying to do here is do a big randomized intervention which will give us some answer to that question, which is obviously a very important question because, as I keep saying, this, this group is incredibly difficult to reach. You know, there's very few interventions I can think of that actually kind of permanently change their lives. There's things that can lift them for a bit. And, you know, there, there's lots of, you know, behavioral and other norm-type reasons as to why uh, people might not want to shift occupation. For example, they may not feel that they're qualified, they may feel it's socially unacceptable. Uh, so what, 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 I, what I found exciting going into the project is, firstly, that BRAC very kindly allowed us to live off, the, off a percentage, basically, a, the valuation percentage of the program. So this is very expensive. The, the, the valuation I'm talking about costs about a, just over a million pounds. Um, and the reason it costs so much is we did the randomization across communities. And the reason we did that is because we wanted to look not just at the effect of the women who received the program, but also at the effect of the people who are in, in other parts of the income distribution. And the second reason we want to do that is we want to look at the general equilibrium effect. So, for example, if these women, having received the program, are now withdrawing their labor from the, the agricultural labor markets, well, then maybe the other poor who are still working in them will receive a higher wage. You know, we'd expect effects on prices, the, the, the things they produce, uh, meat, eggs, and so forth. 
So basically what you have is a kind of a, a whole set of questions which I think are, are sort of fundamental and, and at least when I was beginning the project sort of unresolved in my head what, would actually, what we'd actually see. So the first thing is you begin to look at the, the literature on whether asset transfers affect wealth. You know, you think that's pretty obvious. You're being given something that's worth a lot of money, it should do. But what you see a lot of, particularly in the livestock sector, is things die. Uh, you know, they don't know how to operate these things, they don't know how to feed it. To me, you know, it, it would seem pretty daunting if somebody gave me a cow tomorrow, what I would do with that cow, right? I'd have no clue. I mean, I'd hope to find a field, <laughs> give it some grass. Uh, I had no clue, like, how much water it needs. Um, what the kinds of diseases and so forth. So it's not like these businesses and I should be clear that they were, they were given a menu of choices that included things like running a shop, renting land to grow vegetables, poultry rearing uh, and then various types of livestock which I'll show you more about, various poultry, goat, cow combinations. And what they all, most of them cho chose, about 90% was the livestock thing. And I think that's partly because this is a fairly common business. It's a business they can see the richer members of these communities operating with some success. And so what's going to be interesting here is, is can this, this, this joint capital skill intervention push them into those occupations which were not exclusively but were really mainly the preserve the non-poor women uh, in these villages. So the first sort of question is, you know, does this transfer even, even begin to translate into a wealth increase? It might not, for, for some obvious reasons. The other thing is, in a, in a very simple model of labor supply, if you, get, you, know, if you basically win the lottery, which, you know, so these people are getting about 10 times the value of this, 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 this asset, this cow, or, uh, is about 10 times their, their household wealth. Yeah, they're assetless people, so you're starting from a very low base. In that event, you know, one option you might take is say, well, I have no clue what to do with this thing, so I'm going to sell it, and then I might, for example, use the money for something which is uh, perhaps even more productive than, you might consume it, you know, you might put it in a bank and earn interest. And so I think there's a whole set of questions as to why they would even cha change occupation, behavior and other uh, types of reasons. So what we want to do is, and then there's the, I guess the sort of most hopeful that they would actually use this asset to, to, to start a new business uh, and, and, and increase um, and, in, and increase labor supply. So what I'm going to do in the remainder of the talk, given that we don't have a, a huge amount of time, is try to give you, a, a, I hope, a precise sense of what uh, this program looked like and then I'll run through the results in terms of what happened to these women and then finally I'll, I'll compare these women to other people in the middle of the income distribution uh, at base size. So basically how, 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 how much did they close the gap on various, in, in various characteristics of these women. But I wanted to just list out the selection procedure uh, for, 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 for finding the ultra-poor women. So what basically happens, and I've only observed this once, is myself, is that the, 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 the population of a village gets together and they, they draw some boxes in the, in, in, in the dirt and they're, they're, they've got to be given some basic information from a, a census of the community. So the community here is something a little smaller than a village. It's what you might call a, a hamlet or a spot or a community. I'm going to call it a community. And then basically you have the very poorest, the sort of middle, or next poorest, middle and rich.
and essentially the, the, the characteristics of those at the bottom are the ones I've already pointed out. They're landless, they're assetless, they're uneducated and so forth. And in the middle they may have a small amount of land at the top. They will, for example, own some land and perhaps run a business, perhaps even employ some people. So what then, to, to standardize selection, BRAC comes in and they're already selecting the poorest part of the country and the poorest part, uh, communities there. And then they, they go through and, uh, um, for example, if you're borrowing from an F MFI or getting anti-poverty uh, program relief, then you're excluded. And then there's three, three, you have to then satisfy three out of five inclusions, which you do with assetless land ownership and so forth. And what you end up with uh, is, so there's a sort of standardization of selection, is you end up with, in effect, a group that satisfies those criteria and is treated, that gets the, the cow and the training, and then a group that is, near, you know, that is deemed as poor by the community but doesn't satisfy the criteria, then you have a middle, and then you have the, the rich. And this is just to give you a sense of the... The, the sort of labor um, uh, supply of the, of the poor, the near poor, and the middle class. And what's really striking is obviously that there's a huge increase in self-employment as you, you know, move up the, the income distribution and a big decrease in wage labor. So basically the people in the middle and the rich don't do wage labor. They don't work for others. So this is going to be critical because when we look at um, uh, other characteristics, it sort of lines up. So the people who are the, the, the targeted poor, the ultra poor, are, uh, are um, uh, much more, um, uh, more female-headed because that's one of the selection criteria and much less literate. So this sort of lines up with this idea that they, are, they have lower per capita expenditure, they're more f food insecure and, you know, not surprisingly, they have a, a, a lower uh, share of um, households with livestock. And we'll, they're also basically landless. So, so in terms of the evaluation strategy, what we're going to do is we're going to select 20 branches of BRAC as, as treatment, 20 as control, and we are going to um, uh, basically select the, the, the uh, communities um, uh, in each of those, those areas and stratified by sub-district. So essentially what we're going to have is a whole bunch of communities that are treated, a whole bunch that are um, uh, controlled and we're going to do a baseline in 2007, one follow-up in 2009 and uh, a second follow-up in 2011. In fact, we agreed today that we're going to also continue tracking into 2013. And I think in the interest of time, um, I'm going to just go through the, the, the main results. So the main results are the, surprising to, to us. There was most of the ultra-poor maintain or increase the asset stock. And we'll come to that. That's, you know, there is some people who are losing uh, their asset. But the, the sort of critical thing in terms of occupation is this huge increase that you see in self-employment. Okay, so what, remember that they're doing very little of that. Now they're doing a whole lot more. And they're doing much less uh, wage labor. And one thing that's also striking is that they spread their labor now, not surprisingly, because obviously if you're taking care of livestock, you have to take care of it more or less daily across the year. Um, and so you get this much more stable, less seasonal employment than you do when they were dependent on, on wage labor. So the sort of headline result, as a result of sort of shifting their labor supply, 
Uh, and one thing just to notice here is that this obviously is much bigger than this. So overall, labour supply increases a great deal. So one of the kind of key results of these women are working much more, which is not what you'd predict if you win the lottery. If you win the lottery, what you'd predict is you would consume more leisure. So they're working much more, they're spreading that labour across time more evenly, and as a result, we're seeing much, much higher earnings. And, and very importantly, we're seeing a step change. This is the two-year effect, and this is the four-year effect. And then here you see per capita expenditure, again, big effects and increasing over time. So this comes to this sort of trajectory point. It looks like rather than them pulling out of the thing over time, they're actually crowding into uh, creating more value from their asset. This is savings and this is land, which is obviously from an incredibly low base, but they're beginning to rent and own more land. And that again comes to this point which I raised at the beginning as to whether they are on some sort of uh, trajectory out of poverty. And to, for its worth, you also see higher uh, uh, life satisfaction. So to end, I mean, uh, you know, I, I don't want to uh, pretend that these, these effects are uniformly positive. So if you look, for example, at um, income, you know, this is the, the four-year effect and that's the two-year effect. So here it looks like maybe they are struggling and they, perhaps these are the people who are losing their assets for various reasons. We need to, to look at that. But there's not, a, you know, there's not a sort of uniformly either pattern, but clearly the gains are being felt more, more keenly at those at the top end of the thing. There's a similar pattern uh, for consumption. So to finish, um, what we're going to do now is, is just take a look at the difference between the people in the middle. So this is sort of, are we making a middle class type of question? Uh, Remembering what middle class here means, still people basically doing agriculture. It's not the middle class of, uh, of Dhaka. And what, what you see here, which is really striking, is that to begin with, so this is the gap where you're sort of taking the, the middle minus the ultra poor. You see, not surprisingly, the middle are working much more in self-employment. But after four years, so we're looking at the four-year thing. And one, one very important point is after four years, for the whole period between two and four years, they received no assistance from BRAC. And they are now working more than the middle class in self-employment. They're reducing significantly, I guess, in an increasing way, uh, the hours spent in, in wage labor. Again, they, they're working, you know, the middle were working many more days across a year because it, these people have sort of worked about 150 days a seasonal, both in, I mean, the domestic labor and the agricultural labor both seasonal about 150 days a year. And that, and that, that they're getting very close, they're spreading their labor across. And this is incredibly important. So initially, the, the middle are much more productive, but actually, after four years, the ultra-poor, these people, you know, amongst the most disadvantaged people, are actually being more productive per year, per hour, or basically very similar productivity levels uh, to the middle class. So that's a very striking finding, that the change in land is much less marked, and... Um, uh, again, very significant improvement in, in terms of food security, which tries to capture whether you can have you know, a sufficient number of meals in the day. They're get, again getting very close to the, to the, um, uh, the middle class's uh, position on food security. And you see effects on, on, uh, on um, uh, for example, infant mortality and so forth. So I think, just to conclude, I think the two points I'd like you to leave you with is firstly, it's clear that this type of program, I can't say which elements of it, have an incredibly big effect at some expense 
and do some cost burning to show that it's much more effective than if you gave them cash transfer and you put it into a bank account. So that's the first thing. It has a big effect. But I think what's much more exciting comes to the first question that I asked when I went to these villages. It does look like these people are beginning to resemble both in the assets that they're buying and operating, which are not necessarily those that are transferred out by the program, the middle class. They're certainly not reaching, for example, land ownership of the middle class, but they're beginning to creep up. And very importantly, for that group that was very close to them but was not selected into the program, call them the near poor, the other poor, they've completely leapfrogged them. They've leapfrogged that group and they're now you know, somewhere between that group and the middle class. And to achieve that over a four-year period is you know, quite, a, uh, I think, a result worth um, publicizing. Thank you very much. advantage of having collaborated with someone for many years is that I could predict exactly what would happen, which is that Robin will explain everything that I needed to. So I actually budgeted for that. So I'm going to, what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually do the last bit of what Robin did, mostly over again for a very, very similar program. So the, uh, the, the program that I'm going to talk about is the program run by Bandhan, which is a, a very much a BRAC emulator. So very influenced by BRAC, wonderful organization also, uh, based in West Bengal. Uh, this program is very much acknowledgedly uh, uh, influenced by BRAC. In fact, the, at the beginning of the program, there was a team from BRAC which was at Bandhan training them on how to run an ultra poor program. So I, I, I was there. I, one of those meetings. So it was, it was very much, the imprint of, of BRAC was very clear on the program. So in that sense, these are very similar programs run in very similar places. This is run in Murshidabad. Murshidabad is on the border with Bangladesh. So it's in the east of West Bengal, the central east of West Bengal. It has a common border with Bangladesh and uh, is also, I think, in terms of in the particular areas we were, also was more, I think, uh, in terms of religious distribution, more similar to Bangladesh than many other parts of West Bengal. So this is very, very similar area, and fortunate, and programs very similar. Fortunately, we get very similar results. So, uh, so I'm going to what I'm going to do is I'm going to just spend a little bit more time on the results. I think you saw them, but they flew past you, perhaps, or they flew past me, maybe you read faster than me. So I'm going to just spend a little bit more time on the results uh, of this program and assume that you have uh, mostly uh, understood what the, what's interesting here. What's interesting here, as Robin keeps emphasizing, is that the, this is a, it's not interesting, or maybe it's interesting to say that when you give people money, they get richer. What's interesting is to say that when you give people money, they remain richer after you stop giving them money. And I think that's, that's the question that uh, was uh, sort of central to this exercise. Uh, so what we're going to do is um, we're going to uh, 
just go through some of the results. This is sort of a description of the program. Um, you can, uh, I mean, you can do many. Th you have many choices, as in in uh, the BRAC program. And mostly people did take livestock, uh, so it was again very similar. Um, perhaps a slightly higher proportion took non-livestock uh, occupations. Uh, selling things. I think the big alternative was either gr uh, some grinding rice uh, or selling, selling, uh, just buying things in the uh, city and selling them, selling them, just going from house to house selling saris, for example. So that was a slightly higher proportion, but mostly all of these things were very similar. Um, there was intense um, kind of monitoring of from Bandhan staff, so the costs were again quite similar to the costs in BRAC, slightly lower if my memory serves me. It's there, I think you said about $300 per, per person, I think our costs were about $220 or $30. I, I, but the order of magnitude very similar and about equally split between the cost of the cow and the co cost of the, cost of the um, training and the sort of the general monitoring. Um, we, we start, uh, we start, start the pro program start, started in um, May 2007. Uh, the first end line is in March 2009, uh, roughly, and the second end line is in uh, July 2010. So something of the order of the average distance is three and a half year, one and a half years between the first, first when people got the assets and the first uh, survey, and three and a half years between the, uh, the when they got the assets in the second survey. So again, very similar orders of magnitude. I think you had two years and four years. So. Um, so the in one interesting fact, uh, which is uh, troubling here, is uh, this one, which almost killed us, because uh, it, it, lots of people, you think if you give away money, people will take it. Uh, and the answer is no. Um, um, lots of people uh, didn't. 156 people refused basically a gift of money, because, you know, maybe you don't want to rear a cow, but cows are very saleable. You could have sold it. They just refused it. The reason was uh, that there was a rumor uh, spread, not clear who spread the rumor, whose interest it was to spread the rumor, but it was the rumor was very much there that um, Bandhan was a Christian organization. I think, uh, and it was a way to convert people to Christianity. And, um, that, that, that took care of that. Uh, so uh, people were, s I, I, what's, what intrigues me in all of that is the fact that people actually thought that if they took a cow from Mandan, they would have to convert to Christianity. I mean, it seems that, that's the part I find least plausible. I mean, suppose I, I would have just taken the cow, even if I believed they were Christian missionaries, would have taken the cow and then, you know, sold it and what could they do? But, Nonetheless, um, so this is this is uh, this is the so as I said a slightly higher proportion of non-farm, um, but only slightly. So it's it's uh, 12 percent instead of um, you said 
less than 10. So only slightly, I'll, I'll skip all this. So what happened? So uh, this is, the orange is, is treatment, meaning people who were chosen to get the program. So one of the things you have to do in this, um, that's the only thing that's perhaps complicated in what I'm going to say, or slightly complicated, is imagine that I offer a program to, to three, 400, three, 400 people and only 300 take it, or 450 people and 300 take it. Then basically when I, what I can't do is I can't use the people who took the program as the people who I selected randomly to get the program. That's not allowed. Why? Because those people are not like the people who were offered the program. Some people, you know, they are probably more conservative, they're more religious, and they're different from the people who were initially offered the program. They're a sub selected subset of that group. So you cannot compare those people with the people who were eventually not given the program. So what we have to do, therefore, is treat act as if all the people who were offered the program were, had all kind of taken the program or at least were, were treating, treated evenly with each other. So everybody who's offered the program is in our treatment group and everybody who was randomly chosen not to give them the program is in our control group. So that means that the treatment actually only is going to be, comes off two-thirds of that population. The other one-third of the population didn't take the program. And therefore, everything, every effect you see is scaled down. So everybody taking it, it would be about, you know, uh, half as big again. Okay, so that's, that's something to keep in mind, that basically uh, the, pro, the effects are substantial and they, the effect that really uh, counts, which is the effect on the per person who got it, was bigger, bigger than that. And that's something to keep in mind when you look at the data. So with that, I think we can, so what happened was, you see a basically a more or less persistent, um, persistent increase in per capita monthly average expenditure. So uh, it's, 14% in the, so the, um, the brown is always, or gray, is always um, control, and orange is always treatment. Mm, on the left uh, is N line one, on the right. That's after a year and a half. Uh, on the right is N line two, which is after th three and a half years. And you, s you basically uh, have different measures of, of consumption. And the thing to, uh, to um, note this really, other than the fact that it went up and it went up significantly, um, the increases were somewhat smaller in the second end line, but one of the things that's striking about that is that's largely because the control actually caught up. So one of the things that's happening here is there is a large government program that's launched in the middle of all this, which is called the National Rural Employment Guarantee. It's the world's largest uh, kind of anti-poverty program. And, uh, and that was launched in the middle of it. So I think the participation in that program 
created some force for conversion. So people who actually had a cow stayed home and look, took care of the cow, and the people who who were um, who who had didn't get the cow uh, did actually go and work for this program. So you see some force of convergence. This is a this so, and I think the reason why the effects are smaller is mostly because of that. As you see, both of them are higher uh, in the in in the second end line than in the first end line, but the increase is bigger for the control group, which is, I think, a result of this other program. And that's an occupational hazard of anybody doing a program evaluation. It's thing, other things happen. Um, so one of the things to, uh, other thing to emphasize is that you see uh, basically one thing that really does change between the first and second end line, and that's durables. So in the first end line, the money goes into like food. A lot of the extra money goes into food and other things that are sort of more, more essentials, if you like. And in the second end line, you start to see people buying durables. So they're buying, uh, and durables means they're buying like very rarely televisions, but like a pressure cooker, pots, uh, uh, stoves, all kinds of things. So they're buying durables, and that seems to be one of the things that happens after the first thing people do is they accumulate some, you get increase in food security first, and then after food security, you see people moving towards these other assets, and you see that pattern here. Um, and that this is just breaking that down, and you see basically all kind of food items. So this is what food is food security. So uh, food security uh, go, goes up uh, substantially in the sense that adult skipped meals goes down significantly. So it's much more less likely that the Adams, adults skip meals, much less likely that the children skip meals. So you do, you do see effects on, on food security, like I think um, in a, with the results that Robin reported. People actually continue to buy animals. So, um, so you see people are, the number of, so this is not the number of assets you have, it's the number of assets you buy. So in addition, people acquire assets. So it's not, it's not that they eat up the cows, and no doubt they do, but they replace them, so on balance, you get more cows. So people are actually acquiring assets. Um, the stock goes up, therefore, by a lot. This is the stock, so the previous one was how many, how many cows you're buying. They buy more cows. And this one, therefore, they have a lot more cows and cows and birds and sh sheep and goats and pigs. So they have a lot more animals, and that sort of. And you see that both in the in both, it's significant in both. It's somewhat smaller again in the second end line. Um, this is other sources of income. Um, I'm going to skip this. What what's striking here? Uh, I think this is, this is, I find striking. So that if you look at business income, so business income is now defined to be not, unlike in terms of Robin used the word, um, maybe the word um, business, I think, or self-employment income. So this is not income from cows. This is our livestock. This is something else. They're really starting what we would call a business. So in other words, they're, they're not, 
They're self, they were always partly self-employed, but now what they're doing is they're actually running a sh little shop or they're selling things or buying fruits and, and, um, and taking them to a different village to sell or they're something else. So they're starting a non-agricultural business. And that, that's something that doesn't happen in the first channel line, but shoots up in the second channel line. And you see, start to see people really changing their occupational patterns, not at the beginning. The first reaction seems to be that they secure themselves. The second reaction seems to be that they're now doing more different things. That's consistent with another thing, which is that um, the, if you look at the, this is where I think it's, the results are different from the results that Robin showed, you see in treatment people are always working more. You have the same? Maybe I misinterpreted the slide. Um, so people are working more. Uh, here we don't break up uh, uh, labor supply, but I think elsewhere we've seen that people are working more and people who are working more are now in the second end line, they're shifting some of that labor towards other things. They're working in their outside businesses. Um, so that's, I think that, that, that's. So the other fact that's interesting is, is that they are starting to borrow. So I think one of the things that's happening is that they are now eligible for microcredit. This is, um, I, I'll, I'll be done, I don't have much to say. Uh, Robin already said most things I had to say. Um, so one of the things that happens is that uh, the, form, the formal, quasi-formal borrowing, that's the column on the right, you see no difference whatsoever in the first end line. So as a first end line, they're still borrowing from their friends, relatives, neighbors. By the second end line, they're participating in financial markets. They're borrowing from Bandhan. And that's, that's, that's also very large uh, effect and significant. So you see a, a big change in, in that. The, that's very clear. Bandhan loans goes up a lot. Um, they are, they have, the, the amount of formal savings doesn't really change. It changes, it is actually not a small effect, 20% higher, but they're not actually, it's not statistically significant. What is statistically significant is the ownership of all assets. So they have more livestock, but also more of every other asset. Household durables, they have, you know, every asset, they have more. So they are actually moving on a path towards accumulating lots of assets. Uh, it's, in other words, as Robin emphasized and appropriately, uh, I think that the way to think about these results, what's interesting about these results, is the fact that these people, this one push seems to be putting them on the same trajectory that most other poor people seem to be on, which is, uh, I think if you look at the, the multiple impact evaluations of microcredit, for example, including one we did, one Dean did, um, you have the same pattern, which is that when people get microcredit, the main use of microcredit is to actually acquire household assets, not so much business assets. And that's the dominant, mm -hmm. dominant fact that also shows up here, is that you do, you, you see the, the, the trajectory into getting household assets. People, that's it. Uh, 
I think uh, you have, we, we see some changes in, in um, female autonomy, but it's in the first end line and that those get bigger in the second end line. Um, it's still, I would have thought, given that these women are the primary earners in these families, uh, these, the, these effects are small, but part of the reason is that uh, Precisely because they're primary earners, they already have a fair amount of autonomy. So it's it's that's part of uh, health. Um, you know, to the extent that we measure it, we don't see uh, huge huge amount of uh, improvement in. Um, what we can actually directly observe, which is the number of days you couldn't work. That's one thing which seems objective. Everything else, unfortunately, is self-reported. So all the, the two measures that where we do see a positive improvement are self-reported measures of health, where we do see an improvement. We don't see, when we ask them, did you miss work because of ill health, that doesn't seem to change. So that could be because, you know, it's a matter of, they get better faster, but they get sick just as often because the inherent disease profile has not changed, but it, we don't see. Uh, um, finally, um, one thing that we find that um, Robin and uh, Oriana and others don't find uh, is this hedonic treadmill. So people in the first end line are happy. They got this, their, their welfare, their self-reported well-being is higher. But then, some reason, that completely goes away. So the one thing, and I think that's, that's not an unknown fact in many other contexts, that's called the hedonic treadmill. Uh, people get used to uh, the, their better, uh, better state, and at that point, they, are, they stop comp start complaining once again. Uh, now, what's striking is they don't find that. That's the one place where the results are different. And uh, I'm going to, you, you know, I'll stop here and just, so I think what's striking about, about I think the, nevertheless, I think mostly these results are very consistent with what Robin reported. And I think what is, I think, interesting when you report this to economists is they say, that of course, this is what's supposed to happen. In fact, Oriana presented and that was the exact reaction. Except that if you had to, I think, ask people five years ago, I'm going to take some of these desperately poor people and I'm going to give them some assets. I think the, the median prediction I would have been, these people, they, how did they get to be desperately poor? They must be irresponsible people of some kind. And so they must, if you give them assets, they'll just waste them. So I, I feel that we can, you can, since people always know the truth ex post, it's hard to convince people, but I still think that I was maybe s pleasantly surprised by these results and I hope it, it sort of creates more of, I think, more faith in our ability to do things for the poor. Thank you. Good evening. 
Uh, it's really a great, great pleasure to be uh, at LSE, uh, and I thank um, Robin and Oriana and all colleagues at IGC for inviting me to this very important meeting uh, in this event. Uh, it's, it's really a very, very nice to be back to LSE uh, because uh, there is some nostalgia there. Uh, I spent a year at LSE a long, long time ago. Uh, but uh, the, the but uh, uh, the situation that we was there at that time has changed in, you know, enormously. At that time, there was no Sheikh Zayed uh, uh, auditorium, for example, uh, and uh, the department uh, which uh, I was part of uh, has now been disbanded. So there is no de demography department anymore in in, in LSE. But th there is a population studies program, I think, which is still there, I suppose. So it's really uh, nice to be back here, and, uh, and uh, uh, I thank you, um, uh, the organizers, for, for this opportunity. Uh, much has also ch changed over the years uh, in the world, and also in Bangladesh. Uh, as you know, that much has been written about Bangladesh and said about Bangladesh over the last several years. Uh, Uh, we, we, we still remember the very unjust and cruel comment that we, we heard at the birth of our country, which is to say that it was going to be a basket case, an international basket case. But fortunately, we can, we can say that that, uh, that basket case is no more there, that there is no such thing as basket case in Bangladesh. And uh, according to many people, many observers, Bangladesh has actually become a basket of innovations. So we are very happy about that. Uh, I have been personally doing some, some research recently, particularly on the health side, and how the country has made progress over the years. And uh, uh, we are seeing a, a kind of a uh, uh, paradox. Paradox in the sense that we are seeing a lot of improvements in some, some areas, uh, but in some others we are, we are seeing some stagnancy or some kind of mixed uh, uh, results. Uh, on the one hand, for example, uh, we have seen that, uh, that, uh, that the mortality levels, both the infant, child and uh, uh, maternal mortality has gone down tremendously over the years. Uh, fertility also at the time of the birth of Bangladesh, Bangladesh had a total fertility rate of 7, uh, which has now reduced to 2.3, which is just above the uh, replacement level. So Bangladesh has done quite well in, 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 the, in, the, in, the, in the fight uh, or in the, in the struggle to uh, control its population. Uh, in terms of life expectancy, uh, 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 the life expectancy in Bangladesh is now about 69, but more importantly the, is, is the gender difference. Uh, until the 1980s, late 1980s, Bangladesh was one of the three countries in the world where women lived a shorter life. But over the years, over the last 20 years or so, this has been corrected. Now women live one and a half years more than the men. Uh, in, in terms of schooling, for example, the net enrollment rate at primary has crossed 90%. And the gender difference between boys and girls in school has disappeared. In fact, there are more girls in school than, than boys. And if we look at 
this changes from an equity uh, dimension perspective. We see that the people, uh, the poor, the women and other disadvantaged groups, they have benefited more from these changes. On the other hand, uh, the progress has been, uh, has been a little mixed, for example, in terms of uh, reducing malnutrition, particularly stunting. And also there has been uh, some mixed progress in uh, reducing income poverty. There has been reduction in um, the headcount poverty, but the Gini coefficient has stubbornly uh, been very static over the years. It hasn't changed much. Uh, we all know that the, the poor are very heterogeneous uh, and, uh, uh, and uh, over the years we, we have seen that the, the, uh, uh, the middle poor and the upper poor they have benefited more but not the lowest 15% of the population. And when I talk about this 15%, uh, they are not those who, who live under one and, half, uh, one and a quarter dollar, but, but those who live uh, with, with uh, uh, 50 cents or 60 cents a day. And this, these are the things that precisely Robin and Abhichit have been uh, uh, talking about, uh, these bottom 15 percent. And we call them the ultra-poor. Uh, ultra poor. Uh, BRAC has been uh, in, in developments over the last, last, last four decades and uh, uh, it was started in Bangladesh as you know and from 2002 BRAC became international. Uh, BRAC is now working in 10 countries uh, and reaching about 140 million population. And BRAC as you probably know, many of you know that BRAC runs large programs. BRAC is probably the largest NGO in the world at least in some measures. So for example the microfinance program Reach, uh, reaches uh, uh, over, over 5 million borrowers. Uh, the education program, the schools program, uh, BRAC runs the largest private sector education program in the world with 1.1 million uh, children enrolled in BRAC schools. And health program and women's empowerment and agriculture, these are all uh, large programs that are catering to the needs of the uh, population. And a very distinguishing feature of BRAC is that we consider BRAC as a learning organization in the sense that we learn from our failures and we learn from our successes and we try to incorporate those, those learnings into our programs as we move along. Uh, our main goal is obviously poverty reduction uh, and in the late 1980s we found that most of our programs were not reaching the ultra poor and the first thing that we did was to work with the government. At the government at that time was, was implementing a program called the uh, Vulnerable Group Feeding Program, which was a dole. And we, had, we asked the government that, that, that why not introduce some training, skills training into it, so that when the dole is stopped, uh, these women can still uh, continue earning an, uh, an income. And that was the first time that we started thinking and, and working on the ultra-poor. But the, most, the dedicated uh, ultra-poor program was not started until 2002. Uh, uh, and we have heard about that today from the two previous uh, uh, presentations. Uh, through this uh, TUP program, targeting ultra-poor program, we have so far uh, reached over 400,000 
households in Bangladesh. And from our research, uh, we have seen that 90%, more than 90% of them have actually graduated out of ultra-poverty and uh, they have remained in an upward economic trajectory as has been shown by uh, uh, Robin, for example, even after four years of, of uh, uh, when the program ended. Uh, globally, unfortunately, uh, there hasn't been much concern or thinking or experimentation about uh, uh, how, how, to, how, to, how to reach and what to do about the ultra-poor. Uh, now, uh, considering the, the TUP as one of the uh, um, uh, response to ultra-poverty reduction, uh, uh, some uh, sort of development partners such as the CGAP and the Ford Foundation, they uh, started replicating this program in other countries. So now, for example, probably in about 12 countries, this program is being replicated. Uh, and in, uh, in, in most cases, it has worked quite well. Uh, we have seen it, 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 it is working in Bangladesh and also in West Bengal. And also, there are other countries, for example, in Ethiopia or, for example, in Afghanistan, it seems to be working well. Uh, but unfortunately, it hasn't been uh, as successful everywhere. Uh, in our opinion, and those of the researchers who have studied those programs, the reasons for it of not working well are, is more uh, related to the context in which those programs are implemented, but not necessarily a fault in the design or the model. I'm not going into, 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 uh, 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 further into uh, uh, those. Uh, rather, I wish to talk about the, some of the critical factors that we think are important determinants for success of a program like the TUP. First, uh, we have to remember that it is a package. Uh, it is a package of several things. For example, the asset transfer, the skills training, the subsistence uh, uh, allowance to offset the loss in wages, the savings, health, education, and so on. Thirdly, uh, the provision of uh, uh, moral and psychological support. As, uh, as we, have, we have seen in the presentation, previous presentations, uh, that, that it is a very staff-intensive program. The staff go there every week, and this provides a huge kind of moral uh, 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 boost up for the for the uh, 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 for the participants, and I think uh, 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 Dr. Banerjee's uh, 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 colleague Esther Duffalo called it the X factor. So that's I, I think is is a, is, a, is a major reason for 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 the success whatever you have. The third is the how how it is implemented. If a program is not implemented well, even a best model would fail. So that is why we now hear about the science of implementation. Uh, I think in, in our opinion also in BRAC, we, we, we believe that the implementation is the most important part of, uh, of any successful program. The fourth is, is, the, is the question of uh, leadership commitment. Uh, uh, the commitment to add, adhere to the, uh, 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 to, the, uh, to the model all through the, the, the life of the pro uh, project. Uh, uh, the fifth is the, is the context, and uh, through this, the woman <coughs> uh, uh, gets an asset, uh, 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 creating a ladder, for example, but, but it, it all depends on, 
on the on the access to the market and uh, and the and the, and the agricultural uh, situation uh, there. The sixth is the uh, question of proper targeting, and uh, targeting is critical as as you have seen, and you have to identify the right family to reap the best benefit out of that. Uh, seventh is the question of ensuring participation of greater community uh, in the village, particularly the elites uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in, in creating an enabling environment uh, for, the, for, uh, uh, for the ultra poor to, uh, 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 to improve the situation. And uh, research has shown the, 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 the value of, of creating, uh, for example, the uh, poverty elevation committees uh, in the villages of Bangladesh. Uh, eight is the question of graduation, and we talk a lot about it. And uh, uh, the current model that we have assumes that, that all the ultra-poor graduates will be uh, graduating to a microfinance program. But what about if there is no microfinance there? Uh, so, so where they will graduate to? I mean, uh, this is one of the questions that, that, is, that, uh, that is sort of uh, we, are, we, are, uh, 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 we are trying to respond to. And finally, uh, and perhaps very importantly, it is the learning culture of the implementing organization. The organization must constantly monitor progress and change strategies as new issues or problems arise. Challenges in, in, in implementing a program like TOP will be enormous, and we have to learn how to, ad, uh, how to, how to identify those challenges and, what, and, and take actions in order to address that. Uh, uh, and finally, in summary, uh, TOP is a model that we believe potentially can lift millions of people out of ultra-poverty, uh, and, and that is through a well-defined ladder. Uh, overall, poverty reduction cannot happen until these poor people, the poorest people are uh, attended to and gotten out of the ultra-poverty. And in our opinion, it is possible to end ultra-poverty. Uh, we have seen some indications of that uh, through the presentation today. So what is next? Uh, we think that this needs to be replicated and multiplied uh, in more and diverse settings which will help its further refinement and benefit more and more of the poorest. Uh, we, at, we at BRAC remain committed to scaling it up to reach hundreds of thousands of uh, 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 more of the ultra-poor. And obviously we cannot do it ourselves alone. So others, the governments, the NGOs, the donors, the academies will have to come forward to really, uh, together, we can, we, can, we, can, we, can, we can achieve this. Uh, this is certainly a most important and promising candidate for a post-2015 agenda. Uh, we need continued monitoring of it, not only through employing the RCTs, which, is, which, are, which are very important, of course, but perhaps also using more of the qualitative methods so that we understand what is going on uh, uh, with, the, with, the, with the program. Uh, we are sure that our friends at LSE, MIT, Yale, and others will continue their interest in this and uh, help, help uh, 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 understand the program more, understand the 
the situation of the ultra poor more and get them out of ultra poverty. So thank you very much and thanks for your passionate thing. Hi everyone. So I, I think I'm the last one between everyone here and a pub. So I will I will speak um, as quickly as I can. Or I guess I shouldn't speed up the rate at which I speed. I should talk. I should just say less. Um, so even though this was billed as a discussion, I was deliberately I was explicitly told to come and talk about some other results. So I'm going to do the the tacky thing, but by 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 description by um in terms of what but I was told to do this and rather than actually discuss the papers that were just presented I'm going to now tell you about my work. Um, although some of it is actually with Abhijit too. So, um, so I wanted to throw out three quick thoughts that, that um, were on my mind as listening to um, what people were talking about. First of all, you know, made this comment, we heard um, Robin mention how you presented these results and everyone was like, well, of course, you gave away all this money. What do you expect things to go up? Um, and, you know, I do think there would be, it would be very interesting to see in this space a kind of predictions market um, set up for these types of studies. Um, would be, uh, and God knows w what type of selection bias we would have or the type of people would actually play in this market. But, but it, would be, it would be interesting to see that because I think this is, a, this is a common issue. But let me just say one thing, which is I, th I think the surprise here is not the direction. Right? It's, the mag it's, the, it's the magnitude. Because it, it, if you had asked people up front, give away all this stuff and will we'll things go up, everyone would say yes. If instead you asked, give away all this stuff and it'll actually show to be a cost-effective tool, then you're going to get, you're, you would have gotten a mix. Even, and, and I think there is when you get surprises. Um, I can tell you that I was certainly, when I first got involved in these projects, um, that was, you know, I wasn't doubtful of like the direction, but I was, you know, kind of wondering, okay, is this is this going to really prove to be a, a, a scalable, um, you know, can you really make the scaling argument? Okay, so that's the the, the first and um, second thought. The, the the last thought, which is just reconciling some of these results and some of the results I'm going to show you, with some work that we we did in, in India, I think is something which is giving me pause. And at the very least, it's giving me lots of back and forth note writing with Abhijit at just in the last 15 minutes when we were talking about this very point. So we did this thing in, in India where we, we just had a representative sample in Uttar Pradesh and, and calculated the return to cows and buffaloes in a very accounting style. Now, there's no randomized trial here. We weren't like producing, we weren't giving people cows and measuring. We were, it was just very, it was more like an accounting exercise. Imagine you were in business school and someone said, I have this investment idea and you said, well, really, what are the cash flows? Um, and so that's basically where we walk through with these households and walk through the buy price, the sell price, all the input costs, all the output um, revenues, and what would it look like as an actual enterprise. And the, the title of this paper is, is um, Continued Existence of Cows Disproves Central Tenets of Capitalism. Um, because we find negative returns on average. We find really huge negative returns on average if you include wages at market wages. Now, God knows how we calculate market. That's the, you know, obviously, that's a problem with labor at this, at this type of market. So we then also take it to extreme and say, fine, let's, let's assume wages are zero. The opportunity cost of time is nothing. 
Um, even then, then we get buffaloes to a small single digit positive return and cows are still negative in small and single digit. So, you know, zero is included in the confidence interval for both of those. So that's, that's basically what we have to do to get those numbers to look e even remotely reasonable is assume wages are at zero. Um, but now putting this in light with this, what we're about to see, I think there's, there's need to figure out what's going, how to reconcile these, these kind of things. So if you have, you know, you just saw results that said give people cows and consumption goes up. Well, the consumption came presumably from income, which means there was a positive return to this cow. So does that mean, we do have a high distribution in the study I was just mentioning in India. So does that mean that there's something about this program that is pulling, that is, that is generating profitable cows and not the unprofitable ones. And so the one argument could be that yes, that is what you get with the monitoring and the training that goes along with this. That it, and that, that, that is one way of reconciling these types of results. Okay. On to, on to what I'm going to present. Um, so wh why replicate? So we did this, we, you know, we saw this once with Bangladesh and then twice with Bandhan um, and then Ford and CGAP, um, as was mentioned earlier, um, was very excited about these, said we want to replicate, but they said we want to replicate along with more randomized trials to, um, to do this. And so this is one of the, one of the mantras, one of the, the motivations behind the original creation of Innovations for Poverty Action was the idea that, look, you know, people always pose the external validity question when they see a result from one place in one country in one point in time and they say, well, you know, what, what can we do with this? And there's two directions you can do, you can do that with that. You can say, you can take that as a criticism of any evaluation and say, you're right, what are we doing? We're wasting our time, we shouldn't do evaluations because, because how could you ever take this lesson and go elsewhere? Or the other is you can say, yeah, you're right, you know, you shouldn't take it too far from any one place, but that but then we should just do it many, many times. Now, that doesn't mean infinite times. We shouldn't do an evaluation in every single place. But we need to be somewhere between one and infinity and every time. And this was an effort and one of the mantras of IPA is that we need to you know, do something more than one and less than every time. And this was one of the poster children for, that, for starting that. So you know, the idea though is to think about replication is not just increasing your sample size. I think that's a, a, key, a, you know, a key thing not to, not to think of it merely as. So it is about, about testing it out in different environments. Now it's very hard to set up a replication in a place where your environmental context, um, you predict it not to work. Right, if we wanted to replicate deworming to, in order to see whether the, 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 what contextual factors were relevant, we would not set up a test of deworming here in inner city London. Um, um, just to prove that in fact in, uh, having an infestation of worms is a necessary conditional um, environmental state in which for this theory to work. So it's not as simple as just saying we're trying out in different contexts and we have some theory about when it's going to work and when it's not. The theories that we need to test are more about within the contexts about the type of people it's going to work better for or the types of um, additional components and access to markets and things of this nature that might, might vary within a particular setting. And so that's what we mean by kind of theory-led replication is to have some more variety in those types of more subtle, subtle contextual factors. Um, there's also, you know, in, importance for the replication to just to be able to see with different implementing partners, for instance, that have different organizational cultures, are we going to see similar results? That's a very hard thing when we get a different answer to be able to pinpoint what is it that's driving that difference, but just being able to see whether the results are robust to different organizational um, dynamics and organizational um, cultures is, is important from a policy perspective when we go into a new place and to, giving us the confidence of what we need to do, to what type of organizations we choose, for instance, to implement. Um, and there is, there is a key element too about persuasion. 
So one of the, one of the projects, which I'm not going to report here um, on yet, is in Yemen. The reason for doing it in Yemen um, was, was, was about taking this idea and, and working in, in the Middle East, in an Arab country, and it was very much pushed by, you know, we were kind of pulled into it to be perfectly blunt. Because, and it, the idea was that, look, if you want to have this type of program in the Middle East, you can't show people results from Peru and Bangladesh and have them think that, have them really convinced that this is going to apply in our context and in our culture. Um, and so we need locate, we need ones from each of the regions around the world where then policymakers from those regions of the world will feel more comfortable using those results to implement local policy. So that's one of the reasons for the broad variety. So um, we're, we're at different points on the different studies. Um, where's the, oh, I lost the map. We had a map showing you. So the results, the, 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 the different studies that we have going on right now are Ethiopia, Ghana, Honduras, Peru, Pakistan, and Yemen. Um, where we have randomized trials in each of those. Now there's a core thing that is almost identical to what, what has already been described, so I'm not going to go there at all. But in Ghana is the one place, I'm sorry, so here's the, so, so here's the basic design that we have going in most of those locations where there's just treatment and control communities that are assigned randomly, and then within treatment communities, we have treatment individuals as well as control individuals as well as the non-eligible. Non so this allows us to measure whether there are spillovers by comparing the control households and control communities to control households within treatment communities to see whether there's spillover within villages. Um, but the core, the core treatment control is, is exactly, you know, getting at the same basic question. Uh, Ghana was the last to start and, and had the luxury then of taking some of the learnings from the other places and saying, okay, given what we've learned so far, what are some of the key questions we want to start trying to get at that get inside the box a little more to understand why this is working? And so in particular, we separated out two components. One is the, saving, the access to savings. What is, what, is, it the, is it the case that with access to, to, to a safe um, and zero transaction cost savings account with a strong NGO motivating putting money into a savings account, but with no infusion of capital, that you could then help someone accumulate the necessary assets to buy that goat on their own? And then likewise, there's another treatment arm that says maybe all this other stuff isn't needed. It is just a capital constraint. So let's just give out goats. So we call that the goat drop group. So we just do goat drops. Um, the dropping of the goat, not the goat drop. Um, so this is the complicated description of the design. I won't go through it bit by bit. We don't have the results yet from Ghana because that was the last to start. So I'm just whetting your appetite for next year's growth week. Um, so we have a, a long survey module that's very similar to everybody else. Four, we're good. Um, uh, you know, just as you saw from the other sites, a mix of different assets that are very specific to the country. The asset selection is very important and we think is actually the key to the one real non-unsuccessful site, which I'll talk about in a second. So here we go. Very, very simple results. Um, so the India, you've already seen. Um, Pakistan, similar positive impacts as um, India. Honduras is the only site with negative impact on consumption. That includes zero. So just think of that as a zero. Zero change in consumption. Um, Ethiopia um, is quite big. Um, um, actually, the, the, the biggest as a, in terms of the magnitude of the, the impacts there. One thing that's interesting about Ethiopia, as a side note, is the one difference in design with the other sites. In Ethiopia, everybody got the consumption support that was part of the treatment only in the Brock 
and Bondan studies that you just heard about. Whereas in Ethiopia, this was built on top of a conditional cash transfer program, so everybody, treatment and control, was receiving the weekly transfers of cash, and so our evaluation is over and beyond that. And so that's really striking that we get this huge increase in consumption when we don't, then that component is actually not part of the evaluation. Um, food consumption obviously is a large proportion of consumption period, so we'd expect the results to be similar, and they are. Um, likelihood, just very simplistic measure of likelihood of being um, above the poverty line. So in India, this is way up. In Ethiopia, this is way up. In Pakistan, this is um, the confidence interval here includes zero. So this tells us there's something distributional going on, and that's we're, we're still analyzing the data for Pakistan, that that does not go up. So why did Honduras not work out? Well, the chickens got sick and died. <laughs> basically. Not, not every one of them. They were also expensive to feed. It, was, it turned out to not be a good choice for the livelihood. So it goes to say that this is not, there's nothing really contextual about that, right? There is something about, um, you know, you have to choose the livelihood well, and not all livelihoods are going to yield these types of returns. And so, it, it, you know, it's not, this is an important part of the process, is really thinking through how safe are these assets? What is the technical skills necessary to raise them? What are they going to be the access to markets to sell them? Things of this nature. Um, so, you know, when we think that's what's going on, we're still analyzing the data of the Honduras, but that, that, is, that is what is screaming out at us, is that these chickens just weren't profitable. If we did the same analysis we did in India for cows on chickens, we would have just this massive negative returns to chickens. And just as a counterexample, in, 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 in Peru, we have guinea pigs is one of the main things that people did. They eat them in, 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 um, um, in India. Um, I'm sorry, in Peru. They use them as pets, too. We have this nice little, I remember seeing this um, cute little girl who was nine years old and petting her guinea pig, and, you know, which was going to be eaten later. Um, it helped, it, my family was there with me. It create, we created a new term for this called petabolism. Um, um, so you have number of guinea pigs sold is way up, and, and then this is the... The um, number of guinea pigs slaughtered, um, also going way up, so this is, this is good. This is, these are the ones being eaten by the family, and the one, these are the ones being sold for cash and then doing something else. Um, so net income is way up. So this is you know, just a very simplistic uh, asset kind of analysis, the same, way I, the same way I refer to with the cows in India that we did, and the same way that the chickens did not work out well. Okay, so last slide, main takeaway points I want to leave you with is, you know, the overall message here is, is that we, we'd like to think is happening, but this is where we're a little bit weak, all of, all of us, um, is that we're basically saying this is a big push approach. The whole is bigger than some of the parts. Whoops, that's supposed to say S-U-M, not S-O-M-E. The, the whole is bigger than, yeah, that really makes no sense as I wrote it. Um, <laughs> it's kind of obvious, the whole is bigger than some of the parts. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, the whole is bigger than SUM of the parts. Um, so it's, you know, in that big push approach. But to, to really, you know, one thing to notice with that is there's kind of two explanations that you can have for that. One is that there's complementary returns to different interventions, which is one story. Another story is that each individual failure is devastating, and so you have to solve all of them to solve any of them, right? Those are very two different messages in a sense. And we don't know the answer because we didn't piece apart component by component to really get at that inside the box in that way. Um, and that's one of the things that we're hoping Ghana will come out of this. And we're, and we're also hoping that in the second wave of these types of studies, as we start seeing them replicate, because the basic proof of concept is there, 
that with, with other sites involved, we can start teasing out all these different components. So the early impacts are quite positive, but not 100% of the time. And obviously, the question that it asks is, well, when it's not working, why? Um, like I said, the one site that we see the, the unsatisfactory results, we think it is about the livelihood selection. Um, that doesn't mean just get that right and everything's okay, because a lot of work goes into all the other pieces of making this work. Um, but ultimately, you know, what we're left with, as I see it, is a really exciting proof of concept, one that countries should feel comfortable that we've now seen a, 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 a good set of very varied contexts in which it's working, um, but still a lot of questions that remain on the table. So a lot, of, a lot of good room for further learning about how to improve the model, which components are most useful, and frankly, still remains the basic question of comparing to cash. Right? This is, you know, this is a, top, a hot issue and an important issue. All of these studies that are referring to are just comparing to control groups with nothing. Um, we are trying to set uh, a new wave up in Ghana, for instance, that will compare it to cash. Um, and you know, uh, if other sites are able to do this, this, would, this is, I think, a really obvious next, next phase to, to start thinking about because that could blow away cost effectiveness if, if the issue really was more about capital constraints in the first place um, because all of the monitoring is very expensive. Those weekly visits do cost a lot of money. And if that really is not a necessary component, the weekly visits could be reduced to monthly or quarterly or never. That would allow the same program to reach a lot more people. So I'll close with that, and thank you very much. questions now. We'll have about 10-15 minutes for questions. There should be roving mics somewhere. Yeah, there's one. So please raise your hand. There's one up there, please. Um, hi, this is mainly for the people who've worked on the BRAC study. Um, yeah, it was amazing to see your results, really positive indeed. I was wondering whether you've got um, any measure of the social effects of this intervention. From uh, particularly what Robin uh, showed today, it was seen that quite a few of the ultra-poor would have leapfrogged people in terms of economic position who, before the intervention, would have been slightly above the threshold for qualifying, and whether there's resentment on the part of them or indeed on the part of the middle class members who are now having people who just a few years before were classified as ultra poor now being at a similar economic status to them. I think probably actually Mushtaq is in the best position to answer this because uh, one aspect that we didn't discuss in great detail is how Brack took charge of uh, organizing and mobilizing the community to make sure that the program didn't backfire. So do you want to say something about the village committees mm -hmm. and their role? 
Well, uh, <coughs> one of the initial problems we faced was that uh, when the, when the, when the, uh, uh, the ultra-poor were given asset, for example, uh, there was a risk that those might be stolen. Uh, and uh, one of the response to that was that how do you really protect their assets so, uh, except that you can build a better place, for example, for the, for, to, uh, to keep the asset and the person will keep watch on that. But, but also we thought that why not also try to involve the community around and uh, because, because if, if somebody sort of steals it, it, it will be from the same community. So, so if, if you can build a support group within the community for these, uh, for these ultra poor, uh, then, then the chances of, 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 uh, of those happening will be much less. So, so, so Breck uh, uh, started talking to the local community, particularly the uh, elite of the village. And we ended up in setting up what we call the uh, village poverty elevation committees in which we had uh, the, the ultra poor themselves as well as uh, members from different, different sort of uh, socioeconomic groups. And they provided the security, for example. Uh, so that, that's, uh, that has worked quite, quite well. It, it wasn't there at the beginning of the program because, it, because we didn't really foresee it. So that's, that's, that's another, another uh, sort of example of why you need to really continuously monitor and study the program uh, uh, and, and, and try to address whatever we sort of uh, come along the way. Uh, First of all, thank you very much for your uh, talks. My name is Marcus and I'm a starting student at the LSE. And my question is a bit related, concerns uh, the effects uh, of the program on the middle class. Um, was this actually, because we saw that there's a convergence indeed between the ultra poor and the middle class, is it also a convergence in the sense that the mi middle class maybe has to pay higher wages uh, for the ultra poor and therefore has a lower income? Did you test that and uh, what are the results? Yes, I guess um, to, to the former question, this question, we, we, we don't have a sort of are you, are you, uh, we can look at life satisfaction, those sorts of things, but we don't ask them directly, you know, are you depressed by the fact that you've been leapfrogged or whatever? I think the one, the one effect which we can look at, and this paper doesn't really look at it, is for example, what you're pointing to, which is wages. And broadly what happens is that the, as the people, um, the, the ultra-poor remove their labor from the agricultural labor and other uh, itinerant wage markets, there's less people doing it, so the wage goes up, which would, which would kind of go in the opposite direction. Now, of course, it's only the poor that work for wages. So if you're at the top of the distribution, not so much the middle because you wouldn't be, you know, you're not rich enough to employ others, but if you're at the top, you are going to be pissed off that the wage has uh, gone up. So, so you're absolutely right. To look at the whole thing together, you would need to look at the effects across the, across the distribution, which we're, we're in the process of doing, but don't really have you know, the clearest. You know. yeah. Just to add to that, one other effect on the middle classes is on, on charity. And one of the things we find is that the poor report less, uh, less help from, in fact, it go, essentially wipes out all the help they get from other people. This program wipes out, and we find a small effect on their helping other people. So, they, so that's sort of an interesting other dimension where maybe the middle classes are also benefiting. 
I was also going to just add, we, we do look at happiness and so do, and bonding as well, and we see these kind of very qualitative measures of happiness go up in in, in, in India and Abhijit's work, and then in Honduras, oddly, interesting enough, we did find in the first in the first um, wave happiness go up, and then came back down, <laughs> um, maybe because the chickens didn't work out so well. Um, but what was actually even more interesting, I thought, was that the control group within the treatment areas, their happiness went down. Um, and you know, one argument there could be that um, that even though that it's not, it was not so obvious to them that the chickens weren't working out so well. They just know that they were excluded from this this free thing that other people were getting, and it made them, it, you know, made them a little bit sadder about their situation. Hi, were these assets ever used for um, ensuring the households against uh, consumption shocks? Like, you know, asset depletion is a very common strategy to to um, smooth consumption. It, well, I, can, I don't know empirically on the others, but I can say that theoretically this is one of the motivations for the consumption support bundles that were given. The idea, the logic in the, in, in the design was that the, by giving the weekly bundles of rice and food and whatnot, um, that if there is a shock, until the asset starts producing income, there isn't a need to start selling the, or slaughter the asset in order to eat. And so that the weekly bundles of consumption are supposed to be helping exactly on that so that once the asset is producing income, then the income can absorb the shocks. At least that's in theory one of the, one of the motivations for the consumption support. But others can speak to what they found. Yeah, I think, I think the, 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 the fundamental change is that now you're, you're, you're spreading your labor and income across the whole year, whereas before, I think it's known as the sort of the, the Monga region, you know, mm -hmm. where much of what we were studying. So this is an area with chronic what, hunger, uh, I mean, it's sort of almost famine area. And that's primarily these people who are entirely reliant on uh, agricultural uh, labor. And if the weather is bad, you know, you're not going to be hired, and so in this case, you you can you can then go back to putting more effort into your into your livestock acid and continue. So, so a the livestock acid is less prone to uh, weather shocks than crops. That's one you know fact one. Fact two is that if you have one, rather than compared to you don't have one, you can go put your labour effort into the into the livestock acid and at least get some income. So it talks a bit to the insurance. Uh, insurance story. And indeed, in Bangladesh we find that income becomes a lot more stable and a lot less seasonal thanks to the program. Um, on, the, on the themes of uh, scalability that you already picked up um, and also the, the general equilibrium effects, uh, I was just wondering, is there, was there any sense that, um, that there's some sort of uh, limit to, say, the number of, of cows you, you can buy for poor people in a certain area where then the value of the asset drops or there's so many chickens that, you know, eggs are not worth anything anymore or, or anything of those uh, kind of effect? I mean, I would say these are the types of things that in, we saw across the sites everyone was thinking about as they chose the livelihood. It's one of the reasons why you don't see any sites where everybody got the same exact thing. Um, there, you know, 
um, or when you see a dominant one, it's one that is a really intense market, and so the infusion of that, a little more of that asset isn't actually um, moving markets. Um, that, is, that is certainly one of the considerations that went into every, um, every site selection of the asset. Yeah, I, mean, I think we're, we're currently doing the price analysis, the price data. So, you know, if you have, as you say, a glut of something, eggs or meat or... But we're seeing relatively small effects. And presumably when you start to get into that glut situation, you might move into something, into something different. I mean, I, th I think the other thing to sort of keep in mind in general about, you know, the overall, if you think, macro effect is that this may make a lot of sense for helping women in very poor communities who are unlikely to move. But, you know, the, the, the kind of overall development of Bangladesh will probably be more driven <laughs> by people moving from these communities into, uh, you know, I'm not saying I can, I don't have the data to prove that, but that would be my, my guess. So it's sort of helping them do better in these communities where they're likely to be rooted, they have children, they're, you know, they're not young. Um, so I think it's very important to keep that in mind. This is not some sort of silver bullet for all development. <laughs> was, in the short run, too, it was, we would increase the price. So yeah. in, in northern Ghana, we, we, did, we did think that there was like a short run blip because we went into the market, we'd go to the local markets and buy all the goats and then turn around and bring them to the communities. So, yeah. For what reason were, uh, were these households uh, not uh, in microfinance programs such that uh, they, they were able to participate in this one? these ones they were too poor they just didn't know what to do with a small loan that they had to repay after a week yeah it's both a, a demand and supply situation because because for in demand in sense that as Oriana was saying that they're too poor they they know that they can't use the loan and then uh, so but also on the supply side the the loan officers for example uh, wouldn't give a loan to uh, those people because they know that uh, they won't be able to repay it so it's, it works in for, for both sides. So uh, I see the reason for targeting women, but if one were to take the approach from the point of view of the household and ask the question of uh, who would be the ideal recipient, the optimal recipient of an asset if you were trying to get the whole household out of poverty, is there anything from your maybe future plans of research or uh, existing results that would allow us to know whether the woman, the man, or a young maybe son or daughter would be the ideal recipient? Um, so I don't, we don't have a, obviously don't have the perfect answer to that question since we didn't try others. But I think one of the thing, one of the guiding theories of this exercise is that um, there is a fair amount of labor surplus in a certain set of families. The idea is that especially women who have, I think a lot of the households that I met, I met a bunch of households I think, were, because we had a very small sample, I think I met 10% of them or something. Uh, and a very, very clear, I mean, most of them actually have an adult male in the family, or half of them or something, but almost none of those people are earning because that was one of the criteria. So these are, these are typically women with a husband who's either 
has been in an accident or has some chronic disease or is an alcoholic or something like that. So for those people, and they often have young children, the combination means that they are really, their ability to work outside is very constrained. So one of the things they were responding to was the fact that they, they would like to work, but you know, they couldn't, you know, wage labor is difficult for someone who has young children plus uh, and we would ask them, what do you do with your children when you go out to work? And they said, you know, the neighbors are kind, they take care of the children or something. But that's, that's a huge issue for many of these people. And so I think that's one of the reasons why it made sense to target these women, because they actually probably had, if the, part of the point of these assets is that they don't require a lot of going out. Most of the time what you're doing is, you know, you're just tending to your cow and then occasionally you go out to sell, sell the products, but it's, it's not so often. And most of the earnings we found came from selling and buying the, uh, by selling the grown animal, not from milk. It's the, it's the irregular earnings from, from selling animals, which is the big earnings in all of this. So I think that that's something that doesn't take a lot of time. So I, th I think the time dimension of it is, is important in the design of the program. In, in some of the other sites, it isn't targeted in the same way, too. It, and, and, and the intervention really is, I think, um, in some of the other sites, best described as a household-level intervention, not an individual one. Um, so for some of the similar reasons. The slack and labor is not just one person. It's a little here, a little there. And if it's tending to an animal, then you know, it's moved around who's doing it. Just one last question, thank you. Um, just wondering if any of the studies looked at um, the possibility that the diversification of the occupations that were chosen led to like greater um, maybe informal lending across um, the villages in the case that maybe like some of the shocks that would have hit some of the occupations or livestock would, would have allowed some people to lend over in an informal way or insurance. Yeah, I mean, that, it's not something we looked at directly, but one of the um, co-authors who was a PhD student, who's now at Bocconi, he looked at basically how the insurance arrangements of these people changed because we were monitoring gifts, not just, a, not, not just financial transactions, but also food, which are very important. And what he found is that initially you had more of a system whereby you, you borrowed from your landlord either food or money. You know, you, so you kind of ran out of consumption and then you went to your landlord and you got some food or money to keep you going until you got some more labor income. And basically with the advent of this program whereby, as Abbott is pointing out, you, in our case you actually worked fewer hours per day. Your days of work on average for those days you worked went down but you spread that across the year. So total hours uh, went up. And so in, in the case of um, uh, the, the study this, this, this student did, they, they, they moved from doing that type of arrangement, where of course you're forward selling your labor probably at a below uh, um, market wage, to doing much more what you're describing, which is to give uh, and take to people who are closer to wealth than them. So they became actually, as I was just pointing out, actually net, in some cases, net givers of, um, of, of um, uh, transfers, which was helping others, presumably, to get through some, some shock. But it was, quite, it was quite striking that they broke off their, their sort of you know, indenture to, to, the, to the landlords and moved to much more uh, reciprocal type of insurance arrangements with, with, with people who are sort of more like peers in wealth terms. Thank you.
think we run out of time for tonight. And let me please thank the speakers and the discussants and some very special people who are Amalia, George, Jen, Celine and Jeanette who helped a lot organizing all of Growth Week. Thank you everybody for coming. Good night.